I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of No-Till Farmer, Influencers and Innovators. New Leaf Symbiotics sponsors this program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger return on investment. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Paul Schaefer was an early adapter of no-till farming, or what was then called eco-farrow. He first employed no-till farming in Nebraska in 1972. His adaptations allowed his acreage to flourish in the early 70s, a tradition of innovation that spread locally and continues to this day. Schaefer eventually gave up frontline growing in favor of implement design and manufacture, eventually founding Schaefer Manufacturing Company in Indianola, Nebraska. In partnership with the University of Nebraska, Paul spread his techniques around to other farmers both in his region and nationally. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Schaefer about his early successes in no-till, how innovation continues, how he transitioned from farming to manufacturing, and more. I pulled up a couple articles we'd done for you, and it looks to me like you started no-tilling in 1972, which was the same year we started no-till farmer. Is that right? (laughs) Really? Yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah, it's been a long time. A lot of water under the bridge. So did you grow up in this area where you are in Nebraska? Yes, sir. Grew up here. My dad had the operation. We're living on my mom's folks' farm that they homesteaded, or Mm -hmm. I'm not living there now, but my son is. I went to college, and I graduated in 1979, and then I come home to farm. Well, my brother-in-law was already home farming, and my dad told me, he said, "Uh, you need to, if you're going to come home and farm, he said, I'm not buying any more land. He said, we need to uh, work with what we have, and And he says, I don't know if we can support three families on it. So dad said, he says, maybe the University of Nebraska has something going. He said, so he sent me up to North Platte to Gail Wicks and some of those guys up there uh, on a summer program. And they were starting to do an eco-fallow program. They called it eco-fallow. It was planting uh, corn or milo into wheat stubble. But they were disking the wheat stubble once, and they were having a heck of a time planting into that wheat stubble. It just, it wasn't working very well. So I come home, and and uh, my dad had an old buffalo planter, an old rigid one, 
sitting in the fence row, hadn't been used for years. And I happened to be at a sale one day, a farm sale, and they sold six rows of coulters off of an Alice Chalmers planter, one of those rubberized flexible coulters. Right, okay. And so I uh, brought those home, bought them fairly reasonable, brought them home, and I put another bar in front of this old buffalo planter, and I made a four-row planter out of it. And later on that summer, why I had the local fertilizer dealer come out and spray chemical on, some atrazine, and chemicals were fairly new at that time. I mean, they, you know, nobody knew a lot about things, but after weed harvest, we had it sprayed and, and we had pretty good control. And so I built this planter and then kind of went out into the wheat stubble later that summer to see if it was going to work. And, and uh, we had to build some slot shoes to go on it because it was a ridgetail type planter. So we built some of those and put them on that unit. And I kept playing with it all summer and going over in the corner of the field and kind of <laughs> set ground working on it. And anyway, I finally got it so it had worked pretty good. So the next spring, my brother-in-law was planting summer follow corn and and I we did one field at like about a forty acre, fifty acre field of eco fallow, never tilled. So we were doing a little different than what the university was doing. So we went in and planted and my brother in law was planting across the road from me on ground that we'd summer followed all summer long to build up some moisture in the ground so we could plant corn in it. So we were having one-third of our ground was cropped, one-third of it was summer following, one-third of it was wheat. So we got done planting. About three days later, we got about a five-inch rain. And out here in western Nebraska, we'll get our 15 to 18 inches of rain and probably two or three big rains. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all the terraces, and I'd experienced it years before, and my dad had experienced it, Yeah. Summer followed ground, all the terraces had fill up, and you'd never raise any crop, or if you did, you had a late, you know, we had to come back in and replant it. Mm-hmm. So those terraces were all full. So I took my motorcycle up to this uh, field that I had planted wheat stubble, and I just, I knew that I was going to have to replant the terrace channels, and man, we'd never get in there to replant them. Because, you know, with all that wheat stubbles laying on right. top of the ground, I walked up across. I had overboots on, and I was mushing clear, probably ankle deep, anyway, in mud, walking up across that field. And I walked up across the first terrace and looked down both ways, and there was no water, just maybe a little puddle here and there is all. Wow. You could barely see it. I thought, ah, oh, the darn thing broke out. So I walked up across the next one. Finally, I walked the full length of the field, and there was hardly any water I ever come across. And that fall, we had to go back in and replant the summer follow corn uh, in the terrace channels, like in mid-June time frame. Sure. And we had 25 bushel summer follow corn. I had 70-some bushel eco-fallow corn. Wow. I mean, it was, we converted everything over after that. 
to an eco-fallow program. We had one-fourth of our ground in row crops, one-fourth of it in wheat, and half of it in summer fallow to get... So we went from a fourth of our ground, or half of our ground, basically, laying in summer fallow, uh, we went from a third, third, and a third. Sure. So we increased our acres, and so I was able to farm that way and come home and, and keep the farm growing without having to buy more ground. And then it just mushroomed from there. I took some good slides. Uh, I had a SLR camera, and, and I put me a little slide presentation together, and pretty soon the university wanted me to go you know, talk to other farmers or if they'd have a program somewhere. Right. And it didn't take them long, and they converted over to the non-disking program and and going to more no-till. So, and that's how it mushroomed. <laughs> so how many acres are you farming today? Uh, we've got a couple thousand acres. Okay. And I, I run everything out now. I So early on, you were both irrigated and dry land, right? Yeah, yeah. And this was flood irrigation or center pivots or what? It was flood irrigation. Mm -hmm. And um, we used a buffalo cultivator to, you know, ridge it and cultivate and stuff. Sure. I had a neighbor that uh, when we started ridge tilling, it was new back here. And I think we started doing that in the latter part of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, a neighbor across the road or across the fence from us had ground, and, and my dad went on vacation and come back, and and this neighbor saw him downtown, and we'd left the corn stalks, never chopped them or anything all winter long, and, and it was getting close to planting time. It was like probably mid-April when... And the corn stalks were still sitting there. And this <laughs> this farmer across the road uh, saw him, and he said, "Hey, he said, uh, you guys haven't, you know, tore up your corn stalks, disc them under or anything." And he said, "Yeah." He said, "We're starting something new." And he says, "You plan on turning that farm over to your kid?" And he says, "Oh, probably someday. Why?" Well, he says, "He's going to whiz it away." <laughs> he said. He never turned a hand while you were gone on vacation. He never did anything. <laughs> well, we were running 900 head of fat cattle and four or 500 head of fat hogs and stuff. And yeah. so we had a lot on our plate, but I I wasn't planning on, I was, what I was going to do is chop the stalks and then, you know, fertilize and stuff like that and then go in and ridge plant. Well, anyway, dad come home and he never told me about this for a couple of years. He said, he come home and he said, "Maybe we ought to go down and chop stalks or something yeah. on that on our irrigated." And so I hooked onto the stock chopper, and it was a big big mistake to do it. I went down and and uh, chopped the stalks, and then I went to town and I got an anhydrous rig. Well, back then they didn't have colders on them, and so all I had was a bunch of beaver dams down there and. That old farmer, he'd come over, he'd watch over the fence. He'd throw, he plowed all his ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, summer fire, uh, just tilled it all under. And if there was a corn stalk or a root ball laying on top, he'd throw it off in the ditch, basically. I mean, he was that <laughs> clean tilled. 
And so anyway, why we, I went down and burned some of those piles of corn stalks that I piled up with the, I should have, I should have anhydrous first and then chopped the stalks, but Mm -hmm. I learned a good lesson. (laughs) Anyway, the next year we did it, you know, just the opposite. And so about, I don't know, five, six, seven years later, we'd been ridge tilling that long and doing real good with it. And this old guy died and his son came up to me one day and he said, you think you could find me a planter like what you're using on yours and teach me how to ridge tail? Mm-hmm. I said, oh, yeah. And then that's when my dad told me about <laughs> what that old guy had said. I was kind of upset at first, but I kind of chuckled later. His son, this guy's son now, farms my irrigated ground, and he does it no-till uh, or ridge tail and and stuff on it and he farms all of his dad's ground basically two generations after the old man they're they're still doing it and he farms my irrigated so when you were eco following you were pretty much using ridge till then rather than no till when we were see we've got dry land and irrigated ground right so so the dry land we did not ridge till on. No, okay. we did. Gotcha. We were always summer following before we went to the no till program. Mm-hmm. And then once we did that, man, our yields come up. You know, we were raising normal years. We were raising fifty, sixty bushel dry land corn, but our eco fallow corn. The university come down in the mid 70s in there when we we were into it about two or three years and they come down and they wanted us to leave one field and do summer follow on it and then compare for about a five-year period sure on yields from summer follow to eco follow and i was real reluctant to do it because i had such good success <laughs> with the eco follow no-till farming that I said, yeah, I'll do it. So we did it, and we would average 25 to 30 bushel every year better yield on the on the no-till than we did on the summer follow. It just, it it didn't matter if it was 80 bushel or 60 bushel summer follow ground. It was 80 to 90 bushel dry land of eco fallow or no-till, and if it was 80 bushel, it was close to 100 bushel on on the ecofallow comparing the two. I mean, it just, every year it was way better yields on the, because we held that moisture, it was like mulch in your garden. Mm-hmm. You know, you went out and when you planted potatoes, we'd always put wheat straw over the potatoes so it'd keep the moisture in there and we always had good potatoes and stuff. So, but just things like that. And that's, and we've started many, many farmers. I've been down into Southern Kansas, Gail Wicks and I went to three or four meetings down there. And we'd always have one or two farmers that come up and ask, would you, if I called you, I want your phone number. If I called you, would you help me get started in no-till? Sure. And those guys were the guys that got it going, 
in western Kansas. And shoot, hardly anymore you see any summer fallow stuff. It's and there's a lot of continuous cropping corn and stuff. I've had hired men here in the last three years, um, two two and three years ago, they raised 150 bushel dryland corn out here, and I a lot of times I never had irrigated corn. That, you know, I raised sure. that John. And last year we were very dry out here. We had about 17 inches of rain. Uh, during the summer, and my hired man and my son, they were up in that 120 bushel dryland corn this year. And there was a lot of guys that did some continuous crop in corn that they were down in that 30, 40 bushel mm-hmm. you know, in this area. So, well, well, when you go back to do, when you did this uh, study where you where the University of Nebraska had had you leave the summer fallow field. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, not only did you get more bushels per acre, but you got a crop every year, which you didn't get yeah. off the summer fallow, right? Yep, that's right, yeah. We were letting that ground lay idle so we could build up some moisture mm-hmm. in there by tilling the ground. But we were every time we tilled it, we lost moisture because, you know, it had just it had volatized or go up. And, you know, when we'd stir the ground, that moisture had to dry down to kill weeds and stuff and and so we were actually you know getting behind the eight ball basically mm-hmm. it just didn't work very well so later on into the 80s or 90s did you stick with the eco fallow program or make some changes or what oh yeah we've you know we've made changes uh <clears throat> we've you know a lot of the planters early on did not were not conducive to plant no-till. I mean, uh, you know, when the John Deere's and the right. Case IHs were designed and back in the early seventies, uh, they were mainly for plowed ground or totally tilled ground, and and so those planters wouldn't go through that, and so we had to make changes on them to get them to you know, work in this no-till situation. And that's, you know, that's what we've done. And, and yeah, we make modifications every year. I mean, there's new things. My son designed a four-link closer here several years ago. We do a lot of up and over the terraces. Uh, you know, back when, when I first started, we had four and six-row equipment. And some guys had eight-row was probably the biggest. Now it's 12, 16, 24, 36 row equipment. And when you go up and across the terrace, you leave blank spots because that planter can't flex. You know, the tail section catches it and holds the disc out of the ground. And you've got two or three foot of uh, space across the tops of those terraces at certain points going across them that that row unit isn't even in the ground. It's planting corn on top of the ground. And so my son, I thought he was crazy, but he <laughs> developed a four-link closer uh, to put on the back of the planter. In other words, another parallel linkage. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought it wouldn't work. And he put it, he finally built a set for his 12-row planter 
And he called me up one morning in planting season. And he said, Dad, you got to come out here. He said, I'm going across some big old terraces that your uncle made a long time ago with a Malsum terracer. And they were made for four and six row planters. You had to go with the terraces in order to make them work. And anytime we went across, you'd have on one end of the planter, you'd have two or three foot. And on the other end, you know, so when he was going up across those, and so he built that four-lane closer and put on the back of that planter, and he said, you come out here and walk behind me or ride in the tractor, and we'll plant a round or two. And so I walked behind for two or three terraces, got tired, and had to ride in the tractor. But when he went across that terrace with that four-lane closer, it, he had a second parallel linkage on the back for the closing system. It never bottomed out. He had good seed-to-soil contact going up and over that terrace in all positions. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, man, that, you know, that really meant a lot. And especially, you know, if guys are going through ditches and stuff like that up and down hills, it just give you about five, six inches more travel up and down with that tail section and the planter doesn't wear out as quick so he came up with a good idea to make that work and and it's been been very profitable for us so well you thought he was crazy and it's kind of a genetic thing 20 years earlier people thought you were crazy yeah no joke <laughs> you know yeah that's totally right <laughs> just like that old guy you know right across the fence and told my dad what he did it it really yeah it and i've had farmers you know come up to me at a show or at a at you know a meeting that i was at or something and say you know and i said you know there's going to be farmers that are going to say you're crazier than heck but i said it's what you take to the bank is what counts right you know and and so Years ago, in the early 70s, we did a story with a farm manager down in North Carolina who was running the farming operation for one of the state mental hospitals. And he mm-hmm. told about how he was no-towing, and some farmer came by and watched, and he went up and said to the director, hey, you got somebody down in that field. You better get them out of there. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and uh, he was no-towing, and the director told the farm manager about this. But anyway, back and a couple months went by, and July came around, and the corn was looking pretty good. And the farmer came back and went up to the director and said, you know, maybe you should let that guy out. He looks to me like he knew what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, criminy. Yeah, that's good. Is your uh, son farming, or is he involved in the business, or both? Yeah, he's both. Yeah. Okay. He, he does a lot of our design work. Uh, he'll take something to the field, and it's not working right, and he'll figure out how to. Yeah, he's very good at that. I'll come up with ideas, but I don't know how to put them, you know, to work, or I've got to have somebody, and so I just turn it over to him, and and he'll come up with, and he comes up with his own ideas and stuff, new sure. ideas and things. Right. So it it really, you know, works well for what we're doing, and 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 we try and help other farmers. You know, I, um, you know, just like you said, people think you're crazy, but once they see it happening for two or three years, pretty soon they're coming in and. 
and saying, hey, can I do what you're doing or show me how? We'll come back to the conversation with Paul Schaefer in just a moment. Before we do so, thanks to New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger return on investment. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 Risk-Free Satisfaction Promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. With no-tillers looking at much higher nitrogen prices going into the spring planting season, we wanted to share some information from the Commer Research Center at Alpha, Illinois. And Marion Commer over the years has done some work on the economic response to nitrogen. When he applied 60 pounds of nitrogen per acre, he got an increase of 45 bushel, and it turned out to be a profit of $189. When he went to 100 pounds of nitrogen per acre on corn, he got a 59 bushel yield gain and he got a profit of $235. But when he upped this to 140 pounds of nitrogen per acre, he did get a 65 bushel uh, yield increase, but the profits went down to $241 per acre. And this was based on nitrogen costing $1,000 per ton and with a corn value of $5 per bushel. So the most profitable uh, application of nitrogen in Marion's test was to go with 100 bushel of nitrogen rather than 140, and he made more money by going with less nitrogen. Now, let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Paul Schaefer as they discuss no-till methods today and the transition to implement design and manufacturing. Back in 2006, we did a story with you on a couple of the challenges of no-tills, and you had some ideas, and I'd like to run through a few of these and get your opinion today. One of them was on foliar feeding. In those days, you were you give it a shot, and it was working for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still doing it today? We're doing more biologicals in furrow and stuff like that. We're, um, my son does... A lot of that with uh, the dosatron systems and stuff where mm-hmm. we can put different biologicals into a small tank and then meter it through our fertilizer going into furrow and stuff like that. Right. And my son did some uh, foliar feeding this year on uh, some Milo. And I don't, I don't know how it came out. I haven't talked to him about it, but... Um, I know he did some tests with it, and um, so, yeah, we're doing uh, foliar feeding on soybeans, and I know the guy that does my irrigated, he's he's doing some also uh, that way, foliar feeding and stuff and, and things. Tying in with that, you were looking at plant analysis, plant tissue analysis during the season too, right? Yep, yep, yep. And... 
we're doing more of that stuff. You know, I thought here a few years ago, we're just not going to see much, you know, new, new developments. But my gosh, they've got, you know, these biologicals, these farmers are picking up, you know, four or five bushel uh, by spending uh, four or five bucks an acre sure. on it and uh, picking up, you know, four or five bushel yield increase by adding four or five dollars to their total cost of just putting it on. You know, we're just in the infancy stages of it. Right. And then these young farmers, you know, their their GPS equipment and stuff like that, my word, I I'm too old for that stuff, but <laughs> it they you know my gosh, they're farming more acres and bigger equipment. Um, we've got a guy, local guy here, that's got a 54-row planter and doing 10,000 acres. And and um, he put the four-link closers on. He went from an up-and-over terrace, dry land, a lot of his dry land. Mm-hmm. And he went from 15% of his cropped acres out there being blank over those terraces down to 5% after putting that four-link wow. closer on. So look at the acres he increased, right? you know, just by doing that. And just things like that, it's it's amazing what uh, these young guys are doing. Yeah, and it's interesting on these bioproducts, universities haven't done much work on them, and farmers have just given them a shot, and they seem to be working. Yep. And, you know, you, you can, it's easy to get skeptical about some of these, but, you know, farmers are saying, man, I'm doing it, and it's working. Yeah, that's it. And and they're doing a lot of testing themselves, and it's, you know, it's paying off, and so they're doing more, and they're experimenting with, you know, all kinds of just tweaking things. And, you know, we're coming to an era right now where fertilizers are going to get more expensive. They already are. And we're going to have shortages, you know, due to the COVID stuff and and things. And they're having to look at other areas to make up that difference, uh, spending, you know, a smaller amount of money and trying to get a bigger bang out of their buck because some of these fertilizers, they're probably not going to be able to get some chemicals. They're not going to be able to get right. and stuff. So they're having to change their ways of thinking. Right. Well, it looks to me like back here, you, you really saw the value, the nutrient value of leaving stubble on the field. And it must've made a tremendous difference when you were able to move away from summer fallow, because looking back, you, you could, you could see what, what the value of the stubble was, it was it was getting you five and a half pounds of nitrogen for a bushel of soybeans. Yeah, that's it. And a definite plus. Plus, we're not wearing out equipment out there. We're not, you know, we're not uh, tilling the ground or beating the heck out of the ground with tillage tools and stuff like we used to. And And our tractors last longer, you know, we're able to, you know, we spend a lot of money on our planter because it's probably one of the most important tools we have on the farm. It's by far, it don't matter how much you fertilize, how much you spend for seed 
or how new a combine you run, if you didn't have that planter up in good shape and do the a good job of planting, everything else can be for naught. We're working on some things to knock down the stalks and stuff like that, uh, you know, when we're planting on the planters and things to keep the tires from, you know, deteriorating and things like that. So it's it's uh, quite a process. So with higher fertilizer prices and availability, what are people like your son going to do this spring? Cut back on nitrogen, use more stabilizers, or what? I yeah, I'm I'm positive of that. I just had a guy here this morning picked up his 24 row planter and and uh, he said, uh, "Do you have all your fertilizers bought?" And I said, "Well, I haven't talked to the boys, but I said I I doubt if they have it, everything bought. They've they bought some of it, but they're looking at maybe having to cut back some on fertility, and they're looking at more of these micronutrients. I, um, I've i got one of my hired men's looking at the uh, pivot bio stuff to mm-hmm. sure. put, you know, things in the furrow, uh, live organisms to get it, get it going, and and we're seeing a lot of people looking at things like that and uh, picking up some yields without having to spend extra money for nitrogen and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, in our technology on the seeds and stuff like that, I never raised over like 110 bushel dryland corn and and, you know, these guys are doing 140, 50 bushel, 160 bushel out here in western Nebraska. And, you know, but a lot of it is genetics and and in these micros and things that they're doing, tweaking little things to increase their yields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of science behind it, I'll tell you. Right. Well, it used to be so easy to do. All you had to do was go out there and plant. You didn't know anything you were doing. Now you got to think about all these oh, things yeah. and what you do, right? No kidding. So at one time, hard pans were a problem out in your area. And uh, tell yeah. us how you got, tell us how in the earlier days you got rid of some of these concerns. We went in. Uh, I bought one of the first uh, deep chisel machines, straight shank deep chisel machines. We had uh, curved shank de- uh, deep chisels, but we weren't, we'd have to do it about every other year to keep, um, because the curved shank would, it'd go down and pull soil out of the ground, but it didn't shatter any of the soil underneath the soil surface. Mm-hmm. So we started with a straight shank ripper. It pulls a lot harder. It probably adds 15 horsepower per shank more to the, you know, putting it in, you know, getting it in the ground and and doing this deep chiseling, but we're shattering that soil, so we're not having to come back every other year and deep chisel. We're, we're doing it about every four or five years, and um, we're not doing everything. We do mainly areas uh, that there's a lot of heavy, you know, truck traffic and and traffic and stuff out in the fields. 
and uh, areas like that, maybe four or five passes in the terrace channels and on the backside and and we're it's helping our I don't know the bacteria in the soil making that more alive and creating you know a lot of good things in that soil. You were a big ridge till user, and uh, yep. a lot, lot of the ideas that they were using are being used in strip till today. Is strip till catching on in your area? Have you done some of it? Yep. Yeah, we have. And by doing that, we've we're able. Okay, we're basically we're spoon feeding those crops at different times, or we're doing it. Like pre-plant, we're knifing in uh, some nitrogen and some uh, phosphate and stuff like that. And anyway, and then we come back at, uh, uh, you know, in the after the corn's up a ways, and we'll either foliar or have drop nozzles and drop down and uh, put more nitrogen. So, and we're getting by with, on our dry land, we normally used to put on 120 pounds, 130 pounds of nitrogen. Now we're dropped back to uh, 80 to 90 pounds of nitrogen. And still, we're increasing our yields and and we're not uh, wasting it, like doing it all in the fall of the year and then like anhydrous and stuff, and then let that go for the whole year. It's we're kind of spoon feeding those crops and and picking up yields when they need it. You uh, had tried twin rows too at one time. Yeah, uh, we don't do it anymore. It it was a good program. I figured uh, we were doing like ten inch wide spaces, ten to twelve inch wide spaces between the two rows Mm -hmm. and it it really it helped on you spread those plants out in the row you know you basically doubled and i was really surprised the first time we picked uh, that the combine pulled those stalks together and and uh, you know did a super job of uh, pulling two rows in. So, yeah, we did split it up, but we just, uh, I don't know why we got away from it. I, uh, but we went back to 30-inch rows, and and we seemed to, I think the genetics and stuff in the corn will compensate for closeness and, and stuff now. Mm-hmm. Where some of the older varieties, when we were doing that, twin row type plantings. Um, we didn't have the genetics in the corn and stuff like that to being planted close together. Right, right. So if you've got a, a farmer that comes to you and he's got a planter that's two or three years old and he's going to, this he's got it in the shop this winter and he's going to plant again this year, what are some of the real areas he should look at? For instance, what's wearing out at seed tubes or wear guards or what's, what's going to be his big problems that he should really look at? Yeah, there's, you know, the double disc openers, uh, you know, a lot of farmers, well, maybe I can get by another year. Mm-hmm. But when those disc, uh, those double disc openers get down to uh, fourteen and a half, you better be changing them. 
that's only a quarter of an inch or a, a quarter of an inch on the radius or a half inch on the diameter. They're 15 inches new normally. Anyway, so they should probably change those and the wear guard at the same time because that wear guard, a lot of times we'll change the wear guard once or twice before we ever change disc blades. So mm -hmm. that is very important. Um, we've got, you know, closing wheels. I've been out in many, many fields. Uh, farmers will run the rubber tire on their on their closing wheels. And uh, anytime you plant in a wet soil condition and you squeeze that soil shut with a rubber tire, it, it pushes the two sidewalls together. And then you were planting when it was basically too wet to be out there, but shouldn't have been, but had to because wind of opportunity is only open so long. Sure. And then, you get a hot, windy day after you plant it, and that darn seed bee cracks back open, exposes the seed. And I've been out in fields. Guys said, hey, uh, come look at my field. I've got rootworm damage or something. When the corn gets up, like, shoulder high or tasseling, and they get a high wind or something, and the corn leans over or falls over, and you walk out into that field, and there'll be areas where the corn's standing good, and then there'll be areas where it's laying over. And I'd say 99% of the time, you can walk down that field, any corn that's laying over or leaning over, looks like rootworm damage, is that farmer never got that seed furrow closed good over that seed. And any time that seed is exposed to air or... Um, and things, it will not produce a good brace root system. And you can still see the seed be cracked on both sides of that plant that's laying over. And then you go down the field where those plants are standing good and they've got a good brace root system, you see where that seed bee stayed shut. So there's a lot of merit in good closing wheels. And we sold right at 40,000 rows of our zipper closing wheels last year. Wow. And those wheels are, uh, they kind of rototill that soil in, compact it, eliminate the air pockets, give you good seed to soil contact so that that plant can pop out of the ground. And guys will say, man, behind your closing wheels, I see a day or so quicker emergence. Why? And I had a Purdue University agronomist tell me, he said, we've experimented with a lot of closing wheels that are on the market. And he said, we'll have uh, maybe four row or six row planters. We'll have one or two rows of different attachments on there. And he said, I've never seen, he said, your wheels will come out, uh, we'll see 12 to 24 hours quicker emergence behind your wheels. And he said, I think the reason why is because we're aerating that soil, we're getting that bacteria going, and he said those plants want to pop out of the ground. And they don't plug up in these heavy uh, cover crops and stuff like that. Guys really like that. The high-speed planters, because we angle our fingers such that they 
they release that soil as they come out of the ground so they're not rooster tailing soil up out behind you when you're planting at high speed. So are you seeing uh, much use of cover crops in western Nebraska? Not so much right here, but you go east of here, yes. there's And there's guys here doing it, and they're getting uh, by really well with it. Uh, and we're... We're marketing a lot of attachments for those cover crops. It, there's a lot of cover crops out there. You take uh, Kentucky, southern Missouri, southern Illinois, and those places, and we're getting a lot of farmers commenting that, hey, we like your wheels because we get cover crops that never stop growing during the winter months, and they get above the rear tractor tires when they're trying to roll it down or trying to plant in that. And we really like your closing wheels because they they don't plug up or they don't wrap and stuff in those heavy cover crops. And and um, we've had farmers change or flip the zipper closing wheel. It it pulls soil about a half inch further out from any other wheel on the market, and it zips that seed V shut so it doesn't crack back open. Yeah. Anyway. They've changed them around um, and turned the fingers in and still close good and never wrap with them in those big, tall, tall cover crops. Yeah. Let's uh, let's shift gears here. We're, you're talking a little okay. about products and manufacturing. Let's go back and talk about how you got into manufacturing and what some of your first products were. Yeah, I putting on meetings, you know, you guys had me go to several no-till conferences and, and talk about, and farmers would come up and say, you know, I'm not closing that seed furrow good, and I'm not, uh, you know, things just aren't working with this planter like it should. And so um, we come up with our first product was a furrow V-closer. Uh, I had a gentleman come up to our place, oh, it's been probably the early 90s, uh, from Kansas, and he said, Paul, he said, uh, I'm having a heck of a time closing my seed furrow in no-till wheat stubble, and he said, we need to put something on there. Well, Buffalo had a covering disc on the back of their planters, and it worked super well. Mm -hmm. So I took it to my engineer, and I said, we need to develop something. Well, he was the kind of kid, if I brought the idea to him, <laughs> but if a farmer brought it to him, he would, he'd get on it and think about it and get it worked out. So this kid come up from Kansas, I don't even remember his name anymore, and he said, man, he said, we got to do something on those back of those John Deere planters. He said, I'm just not getting good seed to soil contact. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I've got a John Deere row unit laying out in front of the shop. And I said, I'm going to, I said, you go in and you talk to Doug. That was my engineer guy. And I said, you guys figure something out. Mm -hmm. So we got the planter unit, set it up on Doug's bench. And, and I said, you know, I said, Buffalo has this 10, 10 inch covering disc, but I said, I don't think it'll fit very well under this planter. So Doug looked at it a little bit, and this guy was bugging the heck out of him. He said, man, we need to figure something out. <laughs> he said, you think you could get that to work? 
So Doug cut that disc blade down and resharpened it down to about a six-inch disc blade and built a bracket on right on the closing wheel tail section of the planter and stuck it between uh, right behind the gauge wheels, right behind the double disc openers, and on the on the tail section. And he pitched, and we made a or he made a bracket to, so he could dome tubing with set screws on it, so he could pitch a round shaft. So he pitched it, and this kid took it home. And this was like in April, first part of April, and the kid went to the field. And he calls up the next day, and he says, build me, I think it's an eight-row planter. <laughs> and he yeah. said, build me seven more of those. He said, they, he said I think it's going to work great. So he started building them. And at one time, we were building 250 and selling 250 a day. My wife gave me an ultimatum. She said, <laughs> either you sell the farm or... Or get out of farming and do your business or sell a business. So that's what I did. And I had a little bitty shop at that time. I had a, I think it was 40 foot wide by 80 foot long round top Quonset. And Doug put uh, four bandsaws. He had one lady going from one bandsaw to the next one to the next one to the next one. And we were doing 250 a day. Wow. And couldn't hardly keep up. And that went over big. And farmers, you know, around the country, that's how we basically got started in it, uh, building that furrow V-closer. And then after that, a lot of the companies started building, you know, spike closing wheels and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so, yeah, that was one of our things. And then I built the uh, rebounder. Sure. Uh, we had guys calling in. It was like the latter part of the, probably been the latter part of the 90s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we built the uh, rebounder because people were, we had guys calling us and saying, hey, um, your furrow V closer is ripping our Keaton seed firmer off because it come back there between the disc blades, uh, between close to the tail section and they said you're and that's Keaton seed firmer just had first come out and we're getting phone calls from guys saying hey your furrow v closer is ripping off our Keaton so I called the Keaton seed firmer company and said can I get a set of your we had a six row planter at the time I said can I get a set of Keaton's for my John Deere planter and oh no we're out so that got me on, gosh, I got to build a shorter version or something, sure. something similar. So we we started building what we call the rebounder with a concave design in it and to put the seeds down at the bottom of the furrow and get it ahead of our furrow V-closer so it didn't rip them off. So we got started with that and then come to find out uh, the Keaton people didn't put a heavy enough tie strap on their firmer, and that's it was breaking the tie strap, and the farmers were thinking that our furrow V-closer was ripping them off. Well, finally, when I got a set of Keatons, they finally sent me a set after they got to building more of them because they'd sold out, and 
we put them on the planter and I rode on the back of that planter and we'd go out in the field and we'd turn and we could never get it to. And all at once I was watching one row and that tie strap snapped on that Keaton as he was turning. And we figured it out that that's what the problem was. So they started putting heavier tie straps and then a, a metal band around it so they wouldn't break. And, and so that's what, and that's how we come out with the rebounder and got it on the market. And we were hand building those at night. I had three or four ladies, Doug, my engineer guy, build a press and we used UHMW and build a concave design into it. And we'd heat it with a, um, oh, a heat gun heat the UHMW and then bring this press down over it, kind of like a sandwich press, but Mm -hmm. it had a concave design to it, would form the UHMW into a rebounder form. And that's how we got to selling them. Doug would get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning and work until 6, 7 o'clock at night helping helping these four or five gals make rebounders. And and I sent them to some key people, and immediately they went over big time. So that's how we got doing that. Yeah, I remember we did a story way back in 2001 on how uh, it was, on the, it was on, on the Keatons, the pros and cons of trimming part of the plastic tail off. Yeah. yeah. See, I got, well, the Keaton seat people come in, and they saw, I sent a set of them back to a farmer I knew at uh, pretty close to Tremont, Illinois, where sure. uh, Greg Soddard was, and right. he was selling the Keaton seed farmers at the time. Anyway, I Greg got a hold of it and saw it, and so Keaton at one time had a spade-looking designed attachment with a wire on the end of it, and... He had pulled it out of his patent, but his patent hadn't issued yet, so he stuck it back in there, <laughs> and as soon as his patent issued, he came after me. Mm-hmm. He wanted a half million dollars, and I told my patent attorney, I said, hell, I can't afford that. I said, um, we had a long tail on the rebounder. Sure. Anyway, I said, I can't afford that. I said, I'm out of business, and he said, well... He said, is there anything we can do? Well, I said, you know, we've had farmers start putting uh, fertilizer on with our rebounder, and they've glued a little cab on the bottom end of the rebounder to hold the hose, and they were saying that uh, my tail on the end of my rebounder was curling up and shooting the fertilizer up on their press wheels. And they trimmed about two and a half inches of that uh, end of our rebounder off. And immediately the press wheels dried up and the fertilizer was down with the seed. Mm -hmm. So they said, why don't you think about doing that? And So I took that to the patent attorney and he said, well, let's send him one, cut off. And he said, said, maybe we can get around their patent that way. So we sent him that. And about, oh, six months later, why their patent attorneys got back to our patent attorney. And and between then and that time, 
uh, we my patent attorney said he says I will I will fight this for you because he says I know I can win it but he said it's going to cost us probably 250,000 to fight it sure and he said I will spend all the lawyer fees and he says I'll take a royalty off of whatever you sell of these rebounders. He said, I think they're going to go over big time. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, that's the only way I can do it. (laughs) And anyway, he said, what would you offer uh, the Keaton people to get them off your back? And I said, well, I could probably afford $20,000. But I said, that's probably about it. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to offer them $5,000. Well, I said, shoot, we're in court. So anyway, he offered him 5000 bucks, and about six months later, they accepted that. Wow. And at that time, it was one-day sales of rebounders, mm-hmm. what we were selling. And the good Lord was with us, I'll tell you. I mean, he, you know, I had a lot of sleepless nights over the deal, but I said it really... It uh, really uh, come out well, and we've left it off, you know, and it's worked very well. That tail was not doing anything for us, and and so, but, and to this day, they're, you know, they're still whizzed about it, but, (laughs) Well, we got into one time where you weren't allowed to call it a seed firmer, were you? You, It was called a seeding attachment. Yep, yep. Uh, it just placed the seeds. Yeah. And so, yeah, well, we did. And we don't really firm them in. We just place them in the bottom of the furrow. Yeah. Well, you've, you've really gone on and you've got a lot of great products now, and it just shows you what can come out of a farmer's shop. But we've been talking about, a, about an hour now, and I want to end up with kind of a chuckle here because... Okay. I did a Frank Comments article back in 2001, and it had the headline, Who Was the Conference Spy? <laughs> and I had, asked, I had asked you in September to come and talk to the no-till conference about seeding accuracy. Mm-hmm. And the rebounder, the furrow V-closers were going well. So you, you called me one day and said you got a letter from an attorney stating that you better think twice about appearing on our national no-towage conference program. And um, it was from, I'm sure it was from the Keaton people, but and, uh, you hadn't written, uh, you hadn't written the uh, description of what you were going to talk about. I had written it. So it wasn't oh, you. Right. <laughs> and anyway, they, they suggested that you not talk. And if you did talk, you better be careful what you said. And they said uh-huh. they they said they were going to send a conference spy to our yep. meeting to check on you, and it really kind of irritated me, as I'm sure it did you. But uh, they were going to monitor it, and uh, I always thought, well, maybe we'll get an extra conference fee out of somebody coming. I don't know that we did, but I think they had somebody there that was doing it. You remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do now. I forgot about that. I'll be darned. Yeah, no joke. Yeah. And in that one time where uh, I sent one of my hired men back to the conference, uh-huh. and Mike, uh, that's one of my hired men, he farms part of my ground. Yeah. Anyway, he calls up, and he said, 
Keaton's over in my booth, and he said, he said he's pissing me off, and he says I'm going to poke him, and I went, holy cow! I said, Mike, I said just hold off. I said I'll I'll make a phone call, and I think I called you, and you went yeah. over there and told him to stay in his own dang booth and and mind his own business, and and. Mike never called back, and when he did come back, he said, you know, he said, somebody talked to him, and he said he stayed over in his own dang booth and didn't bother me anymore. And that's he, funny, because uh, I, remember, I remember this, but I'd forgotten that you had called me, but you're right, you had called me, and I had gone, and I, I know I'd gone and talked to him and, and said, hey, lay off, this is not not right. We were in St. Louis that year. Yeah. I, yep, I remember yep. that. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate working with you guys. I mean, you know, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me when you come out in 1976. I've still got that picture of you and I out in the wheat field, and you yeah. hand me that plaque. And I've still got it up in my office. And a lot of farmers will look at that, and they'd say, God, you got gray hair now, you know. <laughs> yeah, I got the picture right here in front of me. We looked a little younger then, both of No joke. Yep. <laughs> Thanks to Frank Lesnar and Paul Schaefer for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for helping to make possible the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesnar one more time. One of the questions that keeps coming up from many of our No-Till Farmer readers is what's going to happen with the global warming and climate change? And pessimism and disaster are two words found extensively in numerous negative climate change reports when it comes to the many changes facing agriculture. And even so, a careful analysis of these reports offers bright spots for both no-tilling and cover cropping. But unfortunately, scientists are scaring folks with predictions of killer heat waves, melting ice that will raise ocean levels, higher nighttime temperatures, more drought, increased humidity, stronger storms, changing rainfall patterns, warmer winters, and new threats from weeds, pests, and diseases. Wow. If the predictions of many climatologists come true, we'll see gradual warming around the world that will lead to more soil evaporation and severe droughts. And climate change could result in the northern movement of weeds, growing weed and insect resistance concerns and greater disease pressure due to warmer winters and earlier springs. So the question of how much we're going to get affected by global warming and climate change, nobody really knows at this point, but you can bet that something's going to happen. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. 
find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm lead content editor Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.